0: found in Revelation 5. We'll dive into this glorious chapter and we'll actually cover the whole chapter today. It's one kind of full thought, one full unit. Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty four elders fell down before the lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would assist me this evening uh, to unpack the glories of this text. And I pray you would encourage my brothers and sisters who have gathered here tonight that their hearts would be strengthened. Lord, that you would encourage them, direct them, enliven them, invigorate them in their faith, deepen their convictions. And we pray that you would receive glory and honor and praise from us as we worship you this evening. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, here are some of the headlines from just this last week in the news. The governor of Illinois, said, has started a uh, to promote a group uh, that promotes abortion rights. And another headline, Disney goes all in for sports gambling. A $96 million Hindu temple was established in New Jersey after 10 years of investment. It's the largest Hindu temple actually in the world. And they hope that it becomes a bit of a tourist destination for Hindu people. Uh, Pilgrims, the University of Exeter will confer a new title, a master's degree in the occult. And not to mention all the other reports of the wars and rumors of wars in Ukraine, in Israel, and uh, the other parts of the Middle East, and in Africa. But despite the bleak news that we see just coming in daily in the headlines, Christians have every reason to rejoice, not because of what we currently see uh, going on in the world or even because of what the near future projects to look like. That seems pretty bleak, too. But we can rejoice because of what is revealed, particularly here in Revelation chapter five. It's a chapter that speaks to the fulfillment of all of God's redemptive purposes. And I think of uh, the words of the Apostle Peter in this regard, in 1 Peter one six. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's, that's what Peter is sharing with us. That's essentially what... We have before us here in Revelation 5, we can rejoice even in the midst of these great afflictions and in the, the afflictions that will be upon us in the future, not because of the afflictions, but because we know with certainty that God will fulfill his redemptive purposes. So a very simple outline for this uh, chapter, verses 1 through 5 speak to the fact that Christ alone is worthy to open the scroll. Verses 6 through 10 that he's worthy of worship from all redemption, and verses 11 through 14, that he's worthy of worship from every creature. Let's look at that first, first point, verses 1 through 5. The chapter actually begins with a focus on the scroll in the right hand of him who's seated on the throne. And, and the text describes the scroll as having seven seals, and having it's written on both the front and the back. Now, it would be very unusual for a scroll, even at this time, to be written on front and back. Typically, it was only written on one side. And probably what this conveys is a sense of fullness, completeness. All that could be said is said. There's nothing lacking in information. And the significance of this actually is developed as the narrative also develops. The scroll signifies God's complete plan of redemption as recorded in scripture, which Christ is now going to bring to fulfillment as he uh, through his death, through his judgment and his reign upon the earth, which is what's going to be depicted in the rest of this book. And the seven seals, therefore, represent the final steps that Christ is going to take in bringing this plan to completion. As Christ opens each of the seals in chapter 6 through 8, steps are progressively taken towards the fulfillment of God's final purpose. And of course, Christ's part isn't revealed until verse 5. Before this, an angel asks a devastating question in verse 2. He says, Who, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Now, it's a devastating question because verse three, 3 reveals that no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. In fact, the phrase in verse 3, uh, the phrase is, uh, it, it's comprehensive. Like, no one, anywhere, nobody is able to open the book. And the reason is given in verse 4, because no one is found worthy. So nobody has the moral authority or the power to bring to completion God's plan of redemption, right? The promises have been made, and they have been coming into fruition, but they've died in the womb, so to speak. So, really, what is pictured here is, is a vision of absolute hopelessness. Nothing can be done. I was with Don Garland uh, in the hospital. When his son Ben was on life support. And I remember when Don Garland uh, asked the physician if there would be any hope of him living after he was taken off. And the weight of devastation that fell when the doctor told us that there would be no hope. That he would die. The weight of that was breathtaking. And after holding out for days... Just hope that maybe he could push through. Maybe he could survive. When when he spoke those words, hope died. And that was just the hopelessness of losing just one life. But the devastation of the words conveyed here mean that none of God's future promises would come to fulfillment. All future hope is lost, and it's lost for every soul. And this is why John begins to weep bitterly. He's not simply mourning the reality and the finality of spiritual death, but he's mourning the fact that all of the promises that God had made would be lost forever. They were there, written on the scroll. All those promises... But nobody was found who could actually open the scroll and bring those promises to fruition. So God's great plan, as it has been progressively revealed throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, what John realizes is it can't come to completion. The promises are there, but nobody can bring it to completion. His great plan of restoring man to his created to his creative purpose as it was revealed in, in Revelation chapter 4, the previous passage. It's over. The hope of restoration could never be realized. And it's gone forever because nobody can bring these promises to pass. And sin has absolutely stripped us of any hope. Again, this is why John begins to weep uncontrollably. Until one of the elders informs him that one actually has been found. He's identified as the Lion of Judah and the Root of David. And we know him, of course, as Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And these two titles, Lion of Judah and Root of David, are drawn from two of the most prominent Old Testament passages that speak to the one God would send to bring his promises to pass. The Lion of Judah is the title given for the Messiah in one of the first uh, revelations of the Messiah in Scripture. If you flip to Genesis chapter 49, this title comes up when Jacob blesses his 12 sons. He describes his son Judah in particular as a lion, the one who will rule. Not surprising because Joseph is the one that's currently in power. He's the second in command of all of Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world at this time. But Judah is the one identified as one who will rule. If you look at verse 9, Genesis 49, 9, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouches a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So this looks forward to the time when there would be a ruler in Israel, the line of Judah, one of Judah's descendants. And he would rule in such a way that all of the other people groups would come and bring tribute to him. The root of David is one of the first references of, to the Messiah in the book of Isaiah and of course Isaiah is known for being the 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 prophet who proclaims the work of the Messiah and in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 he's described as a branch there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and then in verse 10 it says in that day the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire And his resting place shall be glorious. It's speaking of the Messiah. One who would be a descendant of Jesse and therefore of David. Now we we cannot fully appreciate what Jesus has accomplished for us. Again, until we realize the hopelessness that John felt. When he heard that no one was found. In heaven or on earth or under the earth who could open the scrolls. And all the magnificent and glorious promises that, that have been given to us in Scripture could not be fulfilled. So even for John, he was he had been much revelation had been given to him. But imagine if, so, if Jesus were to show up, if we were right now transported in the same vision John had and heard that all those promises that we had been clinging to had been stripped away because nobody could bring it to fulfillment. The devastation that we would feel. None could save us from our lostness except one. And only one. And these magnificent promises can only be received because he alone was faithful. In other words, he purchased these. He alone was worthy to open the scroll. Because he alone could bring these promises to pass. And notice he doesn't invite the elders to come open the scrolls with him. I believe the elders represent the saints because he alone can open them. So even though he's going to allow them to sit on thrones along with him, when he reigns in his kingdom, only he has the right to open these seals. And they will only have the right to sit on these thrones because he is the one that opens the seals. The point being is that he alone has salvation. Salvation is by grace alone, on account of the work of Christ alone. And I want you also to notice the word that is used in verse five. He has overcome. So as to open the book in seven seals. This is the same word that's been used many times earlier, specifically in the letters to the various churches. Remember, those promises were given to those who would overcome. But it is this verse that tells us how we as Christians overcome or conquer. The only way we can overcome is through Christ alone. He is the one who has overcome, He is the one who has conquered, and therefore we too will overcome if we cling to Him. And that's the point. In Christ alone, our hope is found. And that's why we sing in the song, No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns and calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. It's all his power. He is the one who is overcome. And therefore, if we're in him, we will overcome too. So, again, the point of these first verses is that the Messiah alone is worthy to open the book. And that's the reason why is actually explained in the next verses, 6 through 10. And between the throne, verse 6, and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him Who is seated on the throne. And notice how the scene is depicted. The lamb is actually seen standing between the throne and with or among the four living creatures and the 24 elders. In other words, he is in a place of intercession on behalf of the saints and really all of creation. And he's described as having seven horns, which is symbolic of his absolute power and authority. And seven eyes, which means he has omniscience, he's able to see everything, and therefore he acts with perfect judgment. And the seven spirits, which alludes back to Isaiah 11 again, where in speaking of the Messiah it says, the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of Yahweh. He's the Messiah. And of course, he's seen as a lamb, though he is the line of Judah, he is also the lamb. But he's slain, which, of course, is symbolic of his death. See, Christ was worthy to open the scroll, not just because he was God. But because he died. Because he fulfilled all righteousness as it was delineated in the law and the covenants. And then he died on behalf of his people. Again, his death, not just as deity, is what allows him to bring to completion all of God's promises. If he had not died, God's plan of redemption could not be fulfilled. Because his crowning achievement in creation, man, would remain under judgment, but because Christ died, men can be redeemed, as it says in verse nine. For you were slain, and by your blood, you ransom people for God. And notice also that when the, the Lamb takes the scroll, that the, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him in worship, and they're depicted as holding harps, which is symbolic of of songs of praise, and then they're also offering up incense, which is symbolic of prayer. And so the saints here are responding to the work of Christ with prayer and with praise. I think that's really noteworthy because that's the exact same reason that we have gathered here this evening. And just, just by way of encouragement, I just want you to just consider that the very activity that this chapter reveals as the right response to what Christ has done is the very reason that you guys have gathered here this evening. You are responding rightly to Christ's work on the cross. And just imagine the pleasure that must bring our King. That you've made it a priority to come here to sing praises and to pray. And the song which these saints sing is is simple and straightforward, and really explains why the Lamb is worthy to open the scroll. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now notice too, do you you see which word is repeated four times in this song? You. The point is that Jesus alone is worthy to receive all these things. Because he's not only God, but even though he was fully God, he was slain. And this is what allowed him to purchase our salvation. We were purchased from death by his death. Right? Your blood, it says. And notice too that Jesus didn't just redeem the Jews. Right? God's covenant people, the ones who were originally given these great and glorious promises in the Old Testament. These promises are not just reserved for them, but people from every tribe and tongue and nation. No single group is neglected. Christ, in other words, has called his followers from every corner of the globe. Regardless of their access to technology, regardless of their education level, regardless of the morality of their current culture, Christ has elected people from Muslim people groups, from Hindus, and even amongst cannibals. And He will see to it that they receive these promises that He has already purchased for them. That's the point. If He's elected them and He has paid the price for their redemption, they will receive these promises. In 1732, two Moravian tradesmen, 36-year-old David Nitschmann and 26-year-old Johann Leonard Dober, became the first missionaries that were sent out from the Moravians, from Hurenhut. They recently had visited the court of Denmark, and they had heard of the desperate need for missionaries, particularly amongst the slaves of the East Indies, the area we would know as the Caribbean. And when Nietzsche and Dober heard the plight of the slaves and the spiritual hunger amongst them, they volunteered to go. But in order for them to have access to the slaves, they were told that they would have to become slaves themselves. But they cared more for the honor of God and the slavery of these souls to their sin than their own freedom. And they gave up their freedom. And as they stood on the ship, departing from the wharf, they, they, they looked at the faces of the loved ones whom they probably would never see again. And they raised their fists and cried, May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. And what they meant is that they knew that Revelation 5 must come to pass. That Christ had already bought those people and they were just going to tell them the good news. They were already purchased. They were just going to tell them. And Jesus selected them not only to be saved, notice, but to become a kingdom and priests and to reign with them on the earth. So not only are they granted access into his kingdom, despite their lifetime of sin, they're called to be priests. Again remember this was an honor that was reserved only for the descendants of Aaron. But now anyone who is in Christ can become a priest. And they have immediate access to God. And not only this they will reign with Christ. And they will not only live with him in the coming kingdom but they will reign with him as rulers. Vice regents with Christ. Let me just consider throughout history when a king died, he would usually hand over his kingdom to his son. And if he had multiple sons, he would give it to one or he would split it up amongst many of them. Well, God had one son and he gave him all authority in heaven and on earth to rule over them. But the son has chosen to share his rule With all those that Christ has chosen to be adopted. The one who is exalted in this chapter as the only one who is worthy to receive anything. Is also one who has chosen to share all of that glory with his adopted brothers and sisters. If they're simply willing to follow him and to trust him. This brings us to the third point. Why he alone is worthy of worship from every creature. The worship of the Lamb in verses 11 through 14 expands to include an army of heavenly angels. And the number of them is incalculable. Like the number of the stars. Not just like in a galaxy, but in the universe. Astronomers estimate that at an average galaxy... Has about a hundred million stars. And they also estimate that there's ten trillion galaxies in the universe. Which means there are one septillion or ten to the twenty-fourth power. Or one with twenty-four zeros after it. Stars in the universe. An incalculable number. And that is what's being pictured by this phrase. Myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands. It's the the highest number that they had available to them. And it's multiplied. Not only is it plural, but it's doubled. Because, in other words, it's beyond calculation. Now just imagine, therefore, if all the stars in the universe, which are frequently uh, represented by angels. Angels and stars, there's a correlation of them in, in Scripture. But just imagine if all the stars in the universe began to burst out in loud praise all at once. And not not just the hum, but they all just shout with songs of joy. All of those septillion stars all at once singing praise to Him who sits on the throne. That's what John hears. And they sing with loud voices, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. To receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And the point is that, again, He alone is worthy to receive any of these things. But we will receive such blessings too, simply on account of being in Him. But we must remember, He alone is worthy of them. But He has still shared them with us. And then in verse 13, we're told that this universal angelic choir is then joined by every living creature in heaven and on earth and in the sky and in the sea. In other words, every created thing. This would include birds and fish and amoebas and trees and clouds and seaweed and and mountains and alligators. They sing with all their might to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Right? And of course, the the point is, God alone deserves this sort of glory. As it says in Psalm 115, not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name give glory. And the four living creatures which themselves represent creation, they just simply say, Amen. Amen. And the 24 elders who represent the saints, they fall down in worship. And life here, as it's depicted, is how it should be. Life is how God created it to be. And one final thing. Notice that in both these sections, these final sections, This one and the previous, that Christ is praised as the only one who is worthy of worship. But there are some distinctions in in both these choruses, these sections. In the first chorus, verses 9 and 10, Christ is primarily praised by the saints. And it emphasizes their co-rule with him on the earth. And in the second chorus, verse 12, all the angels join in and And they're joined in verse 13 by every creature in all creation. And their praise climaxes with these words, forever and ever. So what's being communicated in these progressive choruses of praise? Well, at the very least, we can be certain that what what it's communicating is that Christ alone is worthy of worship. And he's worthy of it from every creature, every created thing. But I also believe that it's hinting at God's progressive plan of redemption. Again, that which is depicted by the scroll. These progressions of praise are representative of the future steps that are still to come in God's plan of redemption. Steps that are described here in the book of Revelation. So notice that after the seals of the scroll are open, Christ is then, these are the chapters ahead, verses 6 through 19. Christ is going to pour out his judgment progressively with each seal being opened. And then in, after that's over, in chapter 20, it tells us that Christ will then establish his rule upon the earth for the, uh, for a thousand years. And he'll rule with the saints. Right, this is Revelation 20, verse 6. It says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power But they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Same thing that's mentioned in chapter 5 verse 10. And then the praise of the angels in chapter 5 verse 12 also corresponds with Christ's millennial reign upon the earth. That thousand year reign. Because this is when he will finally receive what he's due. In chapter 19 it records a similar train of choruses that are sung by the multitude of angels in heaven when Christ returns and establishes his rule. If you look there, you see chorus after chorus after chorus, just like we see here in Romans, sorry, Revelation 5. And then in the third chorus that we see here in verse 13 is when he's joined by every creature in all creation. And this culminating chorus, I believe, looks forward to the final stage of Christ's redemptive plan. The creation of the new heavens and new earth. When all of the cosmos will be completely free from sin. It will be like creation before the fall, except it will be glorified. And there will never ever be any sin throughout all eternity. Notice the emphasis, forever and ever. Revelation twenty-one one says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. So what I want us to see is that God's redemption is progressive. Right? It happens in stages. We we see this actually in the covenants. God began with, of course, the Noahic covenant that he wouldn't destroy the earth again, and then there was the Abrahamic covenant, that he would redeem the earth through. Uh, eventually pointing to the Messiah, but Israel would be the focal point of that—the seed of Abraham—and then there was the Mosaic covenant where they received the law, and the Davidic covenant, a promise made to David's descendant, and then of course the New Covenant, which we now fully appreciate. But there's also progress in redemption seen in individuals, right? God gave the law on Mount Sinai so that people could know what he what. ...is needed for them to be reconciled to God. There was a... uh, They could come to God through uh, sacrifice... ...through the tabernacle... ...and following the law. And God also revealed that they needed to be regenerated... ...what was called the circumcision of the heart in the Old Testament. So they could actually have their heart changed... ...and then they knew what God wanted for them to be obedient. And then, of course, in the New Testament... We're given the indwelling Holy Spirit. He remains with us and seals us with a promise of our future redemption, which will then come with when we receive resurrected bodies. And so you see, there's a progressive stage even in our redemption. Right now, even, we, we, we're partially saved in the sense that we've been born again, we're new creations, but it's not fully realized yet, because we are, we're not finished, but it will be finished we receive our resurrected bodies. It's progressive. It's also seen in the temple. God established Eden as a place of worship. And then later on, he created the tabernacle, which was kind of like a mini-Eden, where he could come to his people and speak with them. And then, of course, the tabernacle. I mean, then the temple. And then, of course, Christ then became... The temple, he tabernacled among us, according to John John chapter 1. And then, of course, after he died, the church became the temple. We're currently the temple. But then there will be another temple in the Millennial Kingdom. And Jerusalem itself is depicted in the Millennial Kingdom as a temple. No unholy thing will be allowed therein. And then, at the end of it all, the whole cosmos with the new heaven and new earth, will become a temple. And the point is, is God saves things progressively in stages. And that's what's being hinted at here in these choruses. Right? You might also remember the increasing degrees of holiness. Right? You had the land of Israel that was set apart from all the other nations. And then you had the temple. And then in, even within the temple courts, there was a place that was reserved just for the priests the holy place. And then even then, there was the holy of holies. But even though only the high priest could come in once a year. A progressive, you could think of a stage of holiness. Then of course you have a geographic circles of holiness. Zion being at the center and then Israel. And then God is going to also then save the nations and ultimately the cosmos. So the point is that That God is bringing his plan of redemption to fulfillment. It just hasn't happened yet. Fully. It's been purchased by Christ. In that sense it's finished. It's guaranteed. But it won't be realized until Christ finally opens the last of these seals on this scroll. So we're getting progressively closer to the time when all of the cosmos will be as holy as the Holy of Holies was in the Old Testament. And the point of this chapter is that Christ is worthy of worship because He will certainly, without any question, bring all of this great plan of redemption to fulfillment. Let's pray. Jesus, you alone are worthy of worship. And you're worthy of worship from all of us. Unbelievers, believers, stars, mountains, trees. For you created all these things. But you are most worthy of worship because you have redeemed us from our slavery to sin. By perching us through your own blood. And therefore, Lord, we owe you all our lives, all our worship, all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. And so I pray that you would so illuminate us with these convictions, that we would worship you all the more zealously with our lives, because you deserve it. we pray these things in Christ's name.